You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning. Today's scripture is taken from 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 to 19, 24 to 25. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He would do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Verses 24 to 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joyce. Uh, very good morning, everyone. The Lord bless you. I just want to begin with an encouragement for us. Uh, next Sunday, we are starting a new sermon series uh, leading up to Christmas Sunday. Uh, this series is especially meant for non-Christians, uh, especially to help them understand what Christmas is all about, and more than that, to understand what the gospel is all about. So I really want to encourage all of us to be prayerfully inviting, right? prayerfully thinking about who you can bring, your friends, your family, your colleagues, your classmates, your neighbors, and bring them to come and hear um, about Jesus this Christmas season. Now, looking back at our Easter season earlier this year, uh, we engaged, I'll just put some numbers up on the screen, uh, in total, 132 non-Agapians. And out of this 132... Wow. Yes. That, I, yeah, just some, something happened there. <laughs> yeah. So I was saying, yeah, 132 non-Agapians were there for Easter. Uh, Out of these 132 people, uh, 54 were non-Christians. Out of these 54 non-Christians, 44 of them got to hear the gospel. And uh, we even saw 10 of them, 10 of them uh, attending our Sunday services. Now, what these numbers tell us uh, is that occasions like Easter and Christmas, they are great opportunities uh, to bring non-believers to church. So would you prayerfully prayerfully uh, make the most of this opportunity of this Christmas season this year. Now to our sermon. Uh, This is the final sermon on justice. Uh, You realize that justice is one of those things that can make or break your faith in God. Uh, Ellie Wilzel, uh, who was a Holocaust survivor, he wrote about his experience in the German concentration camps during World War II. Uh, He's not a Christian, but he was brought up in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion. And the things that Ellie experienced as a Jew 
uh, the brutality, the dehumanization, the hatred, the injustice, all of these things shook the foundations of his faith very deeply. And in his book, Night, uh, he wrote this. Some of the men spoke about God, right, in the concentration camps, his mysterious ways, the sins of the Jewish people, and the redemption to come. As for me, I had ceased to pray. I concurred with Job. I was not denying God's existence, but I doubted his absolute justice. Now, when we come face to face with how twisted and how depraved and how wicked our world is, it can shake the foundations of our faith and it can challenge who we believe God to be. David's bloody affair with Bathsheba is one of those stories in the Bible that can do that. It deeply offends people, even makes Christians question their faith. Now today we come to the final part of this story, and this is probably one of the hardest parts of this passage to preach for me. Uh, you know, there are some very difficult questions that come out of the passage, but I'll try my best to do uh, those questions justice in my sermon today. So this is what we're going to look at uh, this morning. God and His justice. Firstly, God and His mercy. Secondly, God's chastisement. And finally, God's grace. In our passage today, God executes justice upon David for his wicked crimes. Yet, we see very clearly uh, these three things. God's mercy, his chastisement, and his grace. Now, what do these three things have to do with justice? Are they even in conflict with justice? What would justice look like without mercy, chastisement, and grace? So we're going to try and answer these questions and may the answers that come out from God's word may lead us to a greater freedom to pursue justice in its entirety. Let's begin. Firstly, God's mercy. Now, one of the problems people have with Christianity is mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. And you've probably heard people say, what kind of religion is Christianity? Even a murderer can just ask God to forgive him, and then God just forgives him, right? No more uh, punishment, no more hell. Christian mercy can be very upsetting. And that's kind of what we see in verse 13 of today's passage. Nathan, he has confronted King David about his adul adultery, his, his murder. The charges have been laid out. The punishment for David's crime is clear. And then this is what happens in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, it's really good that David confesses that he's wrong. Uh, it's really good that he's not giving excuses. He's not trying to justify himself. It's really good that David seems to be really cut to his heart about his sin. He's really convicted. But how could God just forgive David just like that? Last Sunday, I spent 38 minutes preaching about how God will do justice. I told us, don't lose hope for justice, right? No one can escape God's justice. I told us, don't lose yourself to revenge because God will avenge. I told us, don't lose respect for authority because even though earthly authority is imperfect and ultimately unjust, God is the perfect judge of all the earth. 
And then this morning, David says six words. I have sinned against the Lord. Sorry, six. And it's like we can take the whole sermon and we can just throw it out the window. Right? It's like the God we're looking to, to do justice, he seems more interested in forgiveness. And so if there's someone you're waiting to bring to justice, someone who has hurt you so badly, so deeply, but this person turns to Jesus and genuinely repents, then guess what? God will show mercy. That person will be forgiven. No more punishment, no more judgment, no more hell. Now, people, what do we do about God's mercy? Is God's mercy in conflict with God's justice? How are we supposed to depend on God for justice if this same God is so quick to forgive? Now, as we ask these questions, I find it so, so reassuring that there are other people in the Bible who are also asking these same questions. We're not alone in figuring these things out. Now, later in the Bible, you have the prophet Jonah. God sends Jonah to preach judgment upon the wicked city of Nineveh. Jonah doesn't want to. But God intervenes. He uses a big storm and he uses a big fish. Now, Jonah finally obeys. He warns Nineveh of God's coming judgment. And guess what happens next? The people of Nineveh humble themselves. They repent before God and God forgives now, in the, in the last chapter of the book of Jonah, Jonah is upset with God. And he says to God in verse 2, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to run away to Tarshish. Why? Because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. They had committed such crimes against him and his people. And Jonah wanted them to face God's judgment. And when God called Jonah to preach to Nineveh, Jonah knew that God might end up sparing this wicked city. And Jonah was right. In Jonah's eyes, God's mercy and love was also his injustice and his unfairness. Now, how did God respond to Jonah? Did God say, shut your mouth, Jonah. I created you. I created Nineveh. I can do whatever I like. Did God say, suck it up, Jonah. Right? This is for my glory. Stop being such a crybaby. No. Instead, God says to Jonah, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now, what God is saying is that he sees the significance of that city. Nineveh is a great city, and God is aware of the hopes and the dreams that are tied to that city. But Nineveh is not just a city to God. God sees the lives of each individual in that city. He sees their potential, he sees their circumstances, and he sees their ignorance and their foolishness as well. And God is mindful even of the lesser things, of the small things, of the, of the other living creatures, like the cows and the cattle, for example. And God is sensitive to what will be lost if he were to bring judgment upon this city. Now, this is that same sensitivity, that same pity that God is showing to David. 
God sees the significance of David's role as king. God is mindful of the children that David has, not only his biological children, but every man and woman and child in the kingdom of Israel. God knows what will be lost if he were to bring judgment upon David. And so because David humbled himself, because David repented like the people of Nineveh, God forgives. God spares David's life. And God shows mercy. Now, what are we to take away from this? Listen to this. In a broken and imperfect world, mercy humanizes justice. Mercy humanizes justice. Now, I think parents understand this especially well. Right? You've got one child coming to you and he says, Mama, Mama, my brother hit me. Right? You confront the other child and that child says, My sister started it, she bullied me. Right? And then you get into this whole drama of who did what and, and who is to blame and things like that. Now, different parents will do justice differently. Right? Some parents will just punish both kids. Some pa- parents will just punish the one who seemed to have started it. Some parents might decide not to take further action right? because both kids have in some sense punished each other already. Different parents will do justice differently. But most parents, at the end of the day, will bring the two siblings together, get them to say sorry to one another, get them to shake hands, hug each other. Now, why must there be forgiveness? Why not just have judgment and punishment? People, it's because justice is more than just judgment and punishment. Justice is about restoration. It's about returning things to the way they are meant to be. Now, the truth is, A world without mercy is a world without justice. I mean, if you pay attention to how people are doing justice today, you would observe some very strange things. You would see people hating those who hate. You would see people discriminating against those who discriminate. People bullying those who bully. People who gaslight those who gaslight. People who hurt those who hurt. Now, there's a certain irony to this kind of justice. It's like we are willing to be unjust to those who are unjust. Our justice is about dehumanizing those who have dehumanized others. Now, when we do that, aren't we as guilty of the same injustice? Injustice ultimately is about dehumanizing people, people made in the image of God. It's all about treating others as though they are not created in the image of God. And the truth is, even the unjust are made in the image of God. Even the wicked are God's image bearers. Even the most twisted are in some sense God's children. And when we treat them as anything less than that, the irony is that now we are the ones participating in that injustice. And so if you want to do justice You've got to treat even the offenders with dignity. You've got to treat them as though they too are part of your family. In other words, if you want to do justice, you've got to be as quick as God to show mercy and forgive. Justice is more than just judgment and punishment. It's about restoration. Let's continue with the next part. God's chastisement. Now, when I was growing up, uh, my parents used to remind me very regularly that my name, Johanan, 
uh, means God is merciful. And that's who God has been all my life. Right? I look back and I see God has spared me all the punishment that my rubbish deserves. Growing up, I was super committed to mercy. Now, many times I took mercy to the extreme, right? And, and my extreme views on mercy would upset people, one of whom was my sister, right? So my sister has a strong sense of justice, plus she's also a lawyer. And, you know, the thing is, I mean, she loves and appreciates Christian mercy. She loves and appreciates biblical forgiveness. But whenever I took mercy to an extreme, my sister would push back and she would ask, hey, you know what, if we just stop at showing mercy, how will that person learn? How will that person change? What is stopping them from repeating the same injustices to other people? And as much as it pains me to say this, my sister is absolutely right. Now, that's what is happening as we come to verse 14. God says to David, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Now, this may seem like God's judgment against David, but it is not. God has already forgiven David completely, right? Verse 13 is absolutely clear about this. But even though God has forgiven David, the consequences of David's actions are still playing out. They're still happening. They have not stopped. They're still ongoing. Now, I'm sure we all know this, right? Whatever we do, good or bad, there are always consequences. Now, God wanted his people to do justice, to keep his commandments, so that there would be good consequences. Now, one of those consequences is mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And God says through Moses, keep God's law and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules and commandments so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Now, people, when, when God's people live holy lives, God's holy name is glorified, even among people who reject God. That's the kind of good consequence that God is looking for. But what David did had the opposite effect. Right? We see this so clearly in uh, the New American Standard Bible translation of verse 14. It says, this is what God says to David, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. What David has done is so wicked. It is so sensational that even the pagans in the surrounding nations, they are shocked. Right? What David has done went beyond their own standards of wickedness. And not only is David being put to shame, but David's God is also being put to shame. The surrounding nations are scoffing and they are saying, what kind of God is this? I thought he's supposed to be a holy God. But even the king that God has chosen can do such wickedness. Is this the God of, you know, is this what the God of Israel is all about? 
and they say he's a righteous and holy God. What a joke. This is a two-faced, hypocritical God. Now, God had forgiven David, but something had to be done to uphold God's holy name. God's glory and reputation was at stake. And so God is going to take action to chastise David. Now, the word chastise means to discipline. And God will discipline David for two reasons. Like what I mentioned, firstly, he's going to discipline David for his own glory, his own reputation. The nations must see that God takes wickedness seriously, that he is a holy God. That's the first reason. The second reason God will chastise David, discipline David, is for David's own good. God is going to put David through immense suffering so that David will learn, so that David will change, so that David will never consider doing such wickedness ever again. So this is not God's wrath against David. This is not God's judgment, but God's chastisement, God's discipline. But what is the suffering that David must endure? It is the death of his newborn child. Now, this is probably the hardest part of the sermon because we're doing this series on justice and we need to ask, why must this, day, why must this baby die? Is God himself being just or unjust by sentencing this baby to death? This is a terrible question. It's a tough question. And this question will matter so much, maybe to some of us in particular. And so I have an answer prepared, but I am also mindful that it may not be satisfactory. And I want to ask for grace as we explore the death of this baby together. Now, God specifically appoints Bathsheba's newborn child to die. No, David had many wives. He had many children. God could have easily decided that David's firstborn son would be the one to die but God chooses Bathsheba's newborn child to die. Now, this reminds us that this child's death is not meant as judgment for David's guilt, but it's meant as discipline for David's growth. And what we do see is that David responds with godliness to this discipline. David gives himself completely to seek the Lord, to intercede for the child. David fasts and he prays for days and days, so much so that even his servants become very alarmed, they become concerned for him. David clings to God's mercy, that just as God has spared his life, God would also spare the baby's life. God's harsh, painful discipline is training up godliness in David. But on the seventh day, the child dies. And this is important because it's only on the eighth day that the child will be circumcised and the child will be presented with a name. So if you look at the passage this morning, you realize that the baby is never called by name. It's always called the child, the child, the child. It's as if the child has no identity apart from being born out of David's sin. Everything about this child is tied to the evil that David has done. Now, you see, th this child is being portrayed as the fruit of David's sinful and wicked affair with Bathsheba. And in an act of discipline, God has decided to put this child to death. Now, later, when David writes his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he includes this line where he says, Behold, I was brought forth, I was born in iniquity, 
and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David didn't lament about how his sin has caused the death of, of an innocent child. Instead, David laments that he too, even as a child, is worthy of death. Because he too was born in sin. And it's like David is asking, what prevented God from putting me to death when I was a baby? What prevents God from putting to death every baby that's born in sin? David reflects on his child's death and he is horrified at the depths of his wickedness. And he's amazed that God is still merciful to him. Now, many have noted that even in the New Testament, James is probably using the death of David's child as a picture of how sin works. And James says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own, own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. David's child was not born from righteous desire through sex in marriage, but this child was born out of David's wicked desires. Now, people, the author of our passage in 2 Samuel, he wants us to see that God is not randomly executing some innocent baby, but God is executing discipline on a wicked father whose wicked desires have brought forth this child. Now, the death of any child, for whatever reason, is a terrible thing. And maybe it's helpful to remember and, that there is life after death, that the child is probably with God in paradise, that God has spared this child even from all the chaos and all the suffering that David's family is soon going to experience. Now, this is as best as I can explain this child's death in the time I have, but I do hope that this explanation has also helped you to see that God is not unjust by ordaining the death of this child. Now, I want to make this practical for us. The role of discipline in doing justice. There are three things. Firstly, discipline upholds God's holiness. Uh, when we don't enforce discipline, even non-Christians can tell that we aren't committed to justice and they will blaspheme God. Mercy, together with discipline, upholds God's holiness. Secondly, discipline restrains further injustice. Now, forgiving someone doesn't mean that you, everything must automatically go back to normal. There's still, an ongoing, there's still ongoing consequences because of what the person has done. So it's still wise to set boundaries, to put rules in place so that the person is not able to harm you in that same way again. And that will also give the, space, uh, the relationship space to heal and for trust to be restored. Now, those boundaries you set are a form of discipline for that person. And that discipline restrains further injustice from happening. Now, thirdly, discipline trains godliness in offenders. People, discipline is good. It's good for us sinners. It helps cultivate godliness. It helps us to learn that there are painful consequences that come with committing sin and injustice. Discipline helps offenders to feel the weight of their actions. But you realize that unless you forgive, you won't be able to achieve this third aspect of discipline, 
Why? Because until you forgive that person, you're always be going to be looking to exact from them, to take from them what you are owed. Your desire to satisfy your vengeance will be so overwhelming that it's going to be impossible for you to discipline them for their good, for their growth, for their godliness. Now, discipline must be an outflow of mercy, not an expression of vengeance or just judgment. Now, these three aspects of discipline are applicable whenever and wherever you have to deal with injustice. Whether with your children, your friends, your clients, your cell members, these three aspects must guide the way that you show mercy and the way you do justice. We come to the final part of today's sermon, God's grace. Now in the, in the U.S., right, recently it was Thanksgiving, in the U.S., between 1978 and 1991, there was a man named Jeffrey Dahmer. He killed 17 people over those years. He then committed sexual acts on their dead bodies, on their corpses. And sometimes he would even eat parts of their body. Now, while Jeffrey was in prison and he got caught for his crimes, there was a pastor who began visiting him and sharing the gospel with him. Jeffrey Dahmer eventually believed in Jesus and was baptized. And the pastor wrote a book about it. Now, how do you feel about sharing heaven with someone like Jeffrey Dahmer? There was a person who, who read the pastor's book and he left the review and, it, and he said this, or maybe it's she, I'm not sure. So the reviewer said this, I, I don't know why you or the person who posted above you cares about the state of Dharma's, Dama's soul much less than any, much less has any desire to meet, meet him in heaven. It's just pray, plain creepy. Now some of the people who have read the pastor's book and written reviews, they are thrilled that God can and does forgive anything and how much hope it gives them of getting into heaven. Good Lord, what kind of sins did they commit themselves to be relieved by something like what Jeffrey Dahmer did? Now, grace is terribly offensive, isn't it? On one hand, mercy spares us from the punishment we deserve, but grace goes one step further. Grace gifts us with favor that we also don't deserve. Grace is deserving a slap but getting a hug. Grace is deserving to get fired but being shown favor. Grace is deserving to get imprisoned but instead getting promoted. And grace is how the story of David's bloody affair comes to a close. Verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved Solomon and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Now the matter is resolved. David lost a child, but now he gains another. The first child was nameless, but this second child has two names. Solomon, meaning peace, and Jedediah, meaning beloved of God. God had first sent Nathan with bad news of judgment. But now God sends Nathan with good news of grace. David, the adulterer, schemer, murderer, and corrupt king, 
is spectacularly restored to favor before God. Now, it's so strange that this story of God's justice ends with a display of God's grace. And it's worth asking, are you happy? Are you happy with how this story ends? Does this ending satisfy you? Does this seem like a just ending to you? Now, if I could go a bit deeper, I would also ask us this. Why do you pursue justice? Why do you pursue justice? Now, when it, there, there are two extreme groups of people who are serious about justice. The first group pursues justice because they have experienced injustice and they hate it. What they want is for the world to be free of injustice. Now, I call this group the realists. The second group pursues justice because they want to make the world a better place. They believe they can change the world and they believe the world can be changed. And I call these people the idealists. Now the problem with realists is that they tend to be very angry. Anything and everything sets them off. They see people ignoring a beggar, angry. They see no one giving up their seat for a handicapped person, angry. When they hear people posting on social media about justice, but they know they don't do anything about justice, angry. And when realists, when they see how today's passage ends, they cannot take it, angry. Now, on the other hand, the problem with idealists is that they tend to either fall into despair or they become numb. Because the more they encounter the realities of injustice, the more their idealism falls apart. The more they realize how deep the problem of injustice goes, the more they become cynical. When idealists see how today's passage ends, they say, Yalo, what to do? It's like that one. But the Christian is neither a realist or an idealist. In some sense, yes, the Christian hates injustice like the realist. Yes, the Christian desires a better world like the idealist. But what really motivates the Christian, what really drives the Christian to pursue justice, it's God's grace. Because the Christian knows injustice is not only out there, but in here. The Christian knows that if judgment were to fall, it must, not, it must fall not only out there, but it also got to fall over here. The Christian knows mercy goes both ways. I need to show mercy because I need mercy shown to me. The Christian knows that discipline similarly cuts both ways. And when the Christian reads the end of today's passage, and he sees David, this wretched sinner, experiencing peace, experiencing healing, the Christian rejoices. The Christian is filled with hope because the Christian knows that the end of David's story is the beginning of our story. Because this is not the story about the child that God put to death. This is not the story about the child that God chose to love. But this is the story of another child another son of David, whom God would set all his love upon and yet would still be put to death. The Christian looks at the end of David's story and he remembers what Isaiah says about the son of David. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are 
healed. The Christian understands that justice begins with God's grace. God's grace expressed through the cross, through Jesus' suffering and death. The reason God can show mercy, the reason God can forgive is because someone else is bearing the judgment. Someone else has paid it all. So every crime, every unjust desire, every time we have oppressed someone who's weaker than us, every amount we've cheated, every amount we've stolen from someone, every lie, every backstabbing, every time you've seen injustice, but we've decided to look away, every time you've dehumanized foreign workers, beggars, single moms, ex-convicts, the intellectually challenged, those physically handicapped, those who don't do so well academically, those who come from broken families, the elderly, the list goes on. It is Jesus who bears the wounds of judgment. It is Jesus who is pierced by the spear of justice. It is Jesus who is crushed under the hammer of retribution. Jesus, every sin, every injustice, every time. Not only is the grace of God the beginning of justice, the Christian understands that justice also ends with God's grace. The chastisement fell on Jesus so that we might have peace. Peace with God. Peace with fellow men. Jesus bore the wounds so that we might be healed, so that we might be restored, so that things go back to the way they are meant to be. The Christian looks at the tightrope of justice, and even before he gets on that tightrope, the Christian realizes that God's grace is the starting point. It's the finishing line, and is the anchor for pursuing justice. Now, people, if you want to do justice because you hate injustice, you're going to be like the fire and brimstone that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You're going to, your justice is going to consume everything until nothing is left. If you want to do justice out of an idealism, you're going to get crushed. You're going to get depressed. You're going to be, you're going to be falling into either despair or cynicism. But if you want to do God's justice... Justice that involves mercy, forgiveness, and discipline, then fix your eyes on the grace of God displayed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let the cross be your starting point. Let God's grace be your fuel, your anchor. And let the gospel fill you with hope that one day, the wounds that Jesus suffered will surely bring peace and restoration. For by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to the end of this passage, I think we are confronted and we are shocked by how twisted, how convoluted our idea of justice is. The way we look at justice, our sense of justice, all of it is so deformed, so messed up, Lord. God, there have been so many times that we, people have wronged us and we want nothing more than, Lord, just destruction upon those people. You may... Lord, you may have even heard, Lord, the prayers that we have prayed. 
not in front of other people, of course, but by ourselves, whispering in, in our rooms, whispering in our hearts, God, don't let this person come to heaven. God, this person, he deserves so much. Give him what he deserves, God. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been fueled by anger, by hatred. Lord, even times, Lord, that we have we've taken a, put some distance between ourselves and justice and Lord, we've looked at justice as just a nice project, just something to work on. We can make the world a better place. And then we get near to injustice and Lord, we are broken. God, forgive us. Father, we ask that you would cause the cross to be our starting point then. Lord, the fact that Jesus paid it all, Lord, let it consume our hearts and consume and shape the way we do justice, Lord. Lord, let the death of Jesus Christ humanize the justice that we want to do on this earth, Lord. Father, I pray that this will be a church that cares for the weak, that cares for the oppressed, but yet also treats the oppressor with dignity while bringing them to justice, Lord. Father, we pray also that the cross of Jesus Christ would be our anchor, it would be our fuel. Lord, that Jesus, you, are, you yourself would be that anchor for us. That you would keep us from falling into self-righteous wrath or into hopeless despair, Lord. Help us to walk this tightrope of justice with hope and faith. Finally, God, we, we pray Lord, for gospel hope, Lord, let that be our finishing line. Let the gospel shape our vision for a world of complete justice, Lord. Oh, that we would see peace and restoration. That our hearts would yearn for the day where the words of Isaiah come to pass. Where the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Where the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt. They shall not destroy in God's holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Father, we pray, O oh God, for that kind of peace and restoration where the oppressed and the oppressor can find unity, can find reconciliation, Lord, where justice is served in its fullest form, oh God. Lord, let that be our vision, oh God, as we think about justice. So we commit ourselves to you, Lord. We commit our hearts to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people say, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg Thank you.